through Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose way of life is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. This is the word of the Lord. Great. As we approach this passage, I bet that the Lord wants to say something to you individually from it. And so what I'm going to do is, instead of me praying, I'm going to give you a little opportunity to pray for yourself, um, to pray for your heart that will be receptive, and to ask God uh, to do his work in you now. So you go for it. You pray for yourself. So Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this psalm. We thank you for what you want to say to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us receptive. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in the psalm, and we're going to try to stay in the psalm as much as possible. Psalm 15 on page 549. This is the the start of our new series in the psalms, as we said. And uh, this is the beginning. Now, I wonder whether you've ever had a oh, father moment. I, I have these moments every so often where I end up saying, oh, oh, Father. And it usually involves something that I've just done. Uh, so I had one, in fact, on Friday uh, afternoon. We're in here for a wedding rehearsal, and I failed in my task of setting everyone at ease. I failed at my task of bringing everyone together in prayer. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't awful. But it just wasn't, it wasn't good enough. I, and I left that place, cycled out from that door. And I said, oh, Father, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry usually comes after it. Uh, or I can't believe that I did that is one of the options. And sometimes it isn't anything sinful. It's just that I've let myself down. And my confidence has been wrecked as a result. There are times, however, when I say, oh, Father, and it has been sinful. I had another one last night. I don't usually have two in a week, but some, sometimes I have more than that. Uh, last night we were at the wedding reception, and we, I was just in conversation with someone, and I had this opportunity to build myself up and make myself look like a superman and make someone else look pretty dumb, and uh, I, I took the opportunity at this other person's expense. And I drove away from there again saying, oh, Father, I'm so sorry I did that. I'm so sorry I let you down. I'm so sorry I let myself down. And actually that time, it was sinful. It was sinful. It is caused by my pride. I wonder if you have these moments. This man, Paul E. Miller, who's written a book on prayer, has these moments where he prays a prayer very, very similar to that. In fact, we're going to have a little book group discussion uh, in a pub uh, about that book after the service. Just that little prayer 
O Father? And what do you do when you're in that circumstance? Well, I think Psalm 15 is written to get us to that place of saying, O Father. So you get us to that place where we suddenly feel we are completely weak and there's nothing we can do apart from God, where we feel like we failed, we feel like we're pathetic, we're lame, we're not good enough, to feel like we're shaken, to feel like our self-image has been rubbed in the dirt. And you'll find that uh, the Psalm 15 has a very simple structure. It starts off with verse 1, which is just the question. And then we turn to verses uh, 2 to 5b, which is an answer. And finally end in verse 5c, uh, which is a promise. So let's start with the question. And here's the question. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And God's sacred tent, his holy mountain, is the place where God dwells. That's the place where he lives. Uh, The sacred tent is also known as, as the tabernacle. In fact, it can also be used for the temple built in Solomon's day. And uh, we see it in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34. When the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord was there dwelling in that place. And we are told that Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. Uh, We also hear of the sacred mountain, like in Exodus chapter 19, uh, where Moses goes to receive the Ten Commandments. And there's fire on the mountain, there are claps of thunder. That is the dwelling place of the Lord, the Mighty One, and everyone knows it. So we've got this dwelling place of the Lord and this question that arises of, of who may dwell where the Lord dwells. Who may dwell, who may live in the Lord's abode? And it's a massive one. Massive, massive question. It it can sometimes be uh, made a little bit smaller and and brought to a place of who may worship the Lord. But I think it's more than who may worship the Lord. It's more than who may enter the presence of the Lord. It's who may dwell uh, with the Lord. And that's the question. So we find the answer in verses 2 to 5. B. I won't read it all out, um, but we're told by commentators that there are ten different conditions. The, the first three are positive. We're to walk blamelessly. We're to do right. We're to speak truth. And then there are three negative conditions. No falsity, no evil, no reproach. Back onto the positive. There are two here. Despise, reprobate, swear to do good. And then finally, two negative conditions, no usury and no bribery. Ten conditions to entering the place where God dwells. And what do these ten conditions remind you of? The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Uh, And this, therefore, is the entire moral law all summed up. So the idea is that it, it refers to these exact things, but it refers to a whole lot more. It refers to perfect righteousness 
the one who is perfectly righteous may enter the place where God dwells. And this morning, in fact, uh, in our family service, I I put them in language that uh, we're all able to think about. So this is what happened. We all, all had our hands in the air. And I said, put down your hands if any of these apply to you. I won't ask you guys to do it, but this is what happened. I said, have you ever said something that isn't true? Said something bad about someone behind their back? Done something unkind to a friend, maybe a brother or a sister? Sided with someone who you knew was doing something bad when you could have been on the side of good? Said you'd do something and then went back on your word? Or being greedy, taking from someone who couldn't defend themselves? And my hope was that the hands would go down slowly and there would be this build-up until finally no one had their hands in the air. But the problem was the hands went down immediately <laughs> uh, and my experiment failed. But it actually had proved itself as well. Uh, it proved that even on the first one, uh, we all fail. And by the time we get to the final one, all of our hands should have been down ages ago. So we all fail. And, and this feels almost mean. It feels like this perfect abode is dangled in front of us and then pulled away because you can't get there. It's a bit like, and this is a trivial example, who's been to the Lake District and Lake Coniston in particular? Come on, Lake Coniston fans. Sylvia's been to Lake Coniston. Will definitely has. He's been cycling there. Um, the first time I discovered Lake Coniston, I thought it was literally paradise. Uh, it was just the most amazing place in the Lake District where they boats on the lake and kayaks and canoes and you can walk up the hill, the old man of Coniston, which in the summer has these tarns, these lakes where you can swim. In winter, it's covered with snow and you can have fun in the snow. And you can cycle and you can run and you can swim on the lake and there's just so much to do. Uh, for someone who loves the outdoors. And I thought, this is literally like paradise. And then I had the sneaky question, I wonder how much it would cost to buy a little abode in this place. You know, one of those lovely, gigantic mansions that have a boathouse right on the river uh, with two um, wooden rowing boats that you can row out with your friend into the lake. How much would one of those places cost? So I had a look on the internet and found out that it was more money than I knew existed, Um, but also that those houses just don't come up for grabs because they're owned by families who won't let them go. And so here's this piece of paradise dangled out in front of me, but guy, there is no way you will be able to enter into the abode of that paradise. Um, That's a bit like what's going on here. Here's God's dwelling place but none of us fulfill the conditions to get there. And, and when, when we get to that place, we realize our uselessness. We realize our weakness. We realize just our lack of strength. We lose our self-confidence even. We get to that place, certainly in the psalm, of being able to say, Oh, Father, I failed. I failed again. I'm sorry. I'm not good enough. But I think this is the place where the psalmist wants us to be. And I think the clue to that lies in verse 1, where the tent is mentioned. 
because the tent makes us think of the tabernacle, as we said, and the tabernacle makes us think of what the high priest did once a year, where he went into that place with a, what did he go in with? A sacrifice, a blood offering. He went in with a sacrifice once a year. He was only allowed to go in once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. And the first thing that he did as he was about to enter that place was to offer a sacrifice for himself and his family. And this is the understanding that even the high priest of Israel starts off as Aaron. Even Aaron isn't able to meet the conditions to get into the tabernacle, to get into the presence of God. So he offers a sacrifice for himself and then a sacrifice for the people. But we want to, we want to wait, actually, a second at that point because we suddenly realize that, that there's a problem even with the sacrifice that the priest is offering. And we find this problem all over the Old Testament. Here's one of them, Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17. The psalmist says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The psalmist is saying that that sacrifice that the high priest offered to make atonement for himself, to make himself worthy of coming into God's dwelling place, into his presence, actually didn't work. Isaiah says it as well. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, he says, The multitudes of sacrifice, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fastened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Or Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. Um, says uh, the Lord, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. So we come to the question of how can we get into this holy mountain? How can we get into the sacred tent? How can we get into God's presence? How can we dwell with him? And not even the sacrificial system was able to solve that problem. But there was one coming who was able to do it. And the sacrificial system, all of it, was pointing towards him. The writer of the Hebrews uh, sums it up perfectly and, in fact, merges the Old Testament anew in saying, this is Hebrews 10, verse 47, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body, his body, this is, you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you are not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So we end up in the situation where there's an answer to a question that many of our friends ask. And that is this question of, so if sin is such a big deal, why can't God just sort it out? He's the perfect God. He's all-powerful. Let him just sort it out. And the answer to the question that we find here in Hebrews is that he did. God the Father sent God the Son to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for sins, for all the stuff 
that we do and don't do in the Bible. All the stuff that's mentioned in this text that gives us the feeling of, oh, Father, I failed you again. And he took all of that stuff upon him on the cross. And he offered this exchange with us, all of our sin, for his perfect, righteous relationship with God. Jesus was the only person who could have filled the conditions of Psalm 15. And he says, folks, I take all that stuff off you. That's on your conscience. I put it on my shoulders, on the cross. Now you can have my perfect righteousness. And you can enter that tent. You can enter that holy mountain. And this is amazing. But still we know that God the Father, God the Son, won't force themselves upon us. The cross is a gift which is offered to us for us to accept. He allows us our dignity. And so back to Psalm when one sorry, back to Psalm fifteen, we find out because of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, we don't have to be shaken anymore. That we can dwell in his tent, we can dwell on his mountain, we can be secure with him. So we have this question of how might uh, Jesus' sacrifice for us uh, help us with verses 1 and 5? Well, we know that Jesus died for us so that we can enter that tent. And we might want to take our Bibles and between verses 2 and verses 5b just write... Jesus died for me, I'm saved by grace. But at the same time, if we write those, we know that's only half of the story. Yes, we are saved by grace, but there are many people who won't let us get away with just writing out that entire section of the Bible. And those people include uh, Paul, who wrote to the Galatians, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free That's the freedom that Jesus gives us. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another in humility and love. Or uh, Tim Keller, writing on Luther and Bonhoeffer, says, We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. That is, we're saved by grace, not anything we do. But if we have truly understood and believed the gospel, it will change what we do and how we live. Costly grace, which is Bonhoeffer's phrase, changes you from the inside out. Neither law nor cheap grace can do that. And so those moments of our Father bring us to our knees, where again we realize God's incredible grace at the cost of his son on the cross. And at the same time, those our father moments make us realize that there is still work to be done in our lives being changed to become more like Jesus. Not that a changed life saves us. It doesn't. Grace is free, freely given on the cross. But when we give our lives to Christ, when we accept that grace... We want to be more like Jesus, and we ask the Holy Spirit to continually be changing us from the inside out. 
producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling alongside the Holy Spirit working in us. And this is a good place to be, knowing God's grace, knowing his love on the cross. So verse 1 reminds us uh, of the torn temple curtain and the fact that we can approach God in prayer. Let us be taking advantage of that. Let us be entering that place where God dwells in prayer as individuals and together as a church. Uh, Verses 2 to 5 during this time reminds us of how we're to love our neighbor. Most of that area is, is how we love our neighbor. And let us be so keen to be loving each other in the church, and to be looking out for each other, and to grow in loving our neighbor, to grow in loving each other and holding together during this time. And verse 5 Uh, reminds us that no one who is in Christ can be shaken. And so just like Christ came down to earth to make sure that no one was left behind, let us be looking out for each other during this time, making sure that no one is left behind. We are the ones who point towards the chief shepherd. We aren't chief shepherds, but we point towards the chief shepherd. We point everyone towards Christ. And if we aren't chief shepherds, we might be uh, like German shepherds. Uh, my parents have this great German shepherd called Induna. And every time we walked up the mountain with Induna, uh, quite often in a straight line when uh, the path was small and we were going up a steep section, Induna would scout out ahead, see where we're going. And like a good German shepherd, he would, he would count us. He would check that we're all there. Uh, and he'd go to the, to the back where the last person was. Um, before going back to the front and sort of pushing us forward. And if one of us did end up um, being left behind and sort of round the corner so no one else could see them, Induna still knew that someone was missing and he would go and find that person and bring them back. And let's be doing that in the church this time, making sure that no one's left behind, pointing everyone uh, towards the chief shepherd, to Jesus, to his amazing grace for us, his love for us, poured out on that cross. Let's pray.